This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile, The Role of Time in International Protection. This is a recording of the third panel discussion on how law and policy shapes refugees' experience of time. Panelists include Sarah Dale, Principal Solicitor at the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, Professor Ben Saul from the Faculty of Law at the University of Sydney, and Shakufa Tahiri, Policy Assistant at the Refugee Council of Australia. This panel was chaired by Professor Jane McAdam, Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted to welcome our final panel to the stage. This is our customary Q&A panel that we hold at the end um, of each conference, although, of course, today we have a, a closing keynote address following this, um, which we're all looking forward to as well. But this panel uh, is designed to really get some more personal reflections and experiences about how law and policy shape refugees' experiences of time. So joining me on the panel, we have um, at the end of the table, Sarah Dale, who is Acting Principal Solicitor at RACS, the Refugee Advice and Casework Service. Sarah joined RACS after a number of years working with people seeking asylum and with refugees in visa cancellation and civil law issues. Having developed an outreach legal service to unaccompanied children within New South Wales and throughout Australia, Sarah worked extensively with children who were detained on Christmas Island and who faced transfer to Nauru. She's appeared before Senate committee hearings in relation to issues about children, oh, sorry, the issues that children are facing in the asylum process, as well as the experiences of those in detention. We then have um, Shakufa Tahiri, who's next to me here. Shakufa was born into a, a Hazara family in Afghanistan. Forced to flee her homeland, her family lived in Pakistan before being reunited with their father in Australia in 2006, where they arrived as refugees. <coughs> Shakufa is an advocate for the rights of refugees and people seeking asylum. In between initiating and volunteering for numerous initiatives at the grassroots level, such as providing legal and interpreting assistance for people seeking asylum, she is also working as a policy assistant at the Refugee Council of Australia and completing her law degree. So obviously you can get a lot accomplished. <laughs> and on this side of the table we have Ben Saul, who is Chalice Chair of International Law at the University of Sydney a barrister and an associate fellow of Chatham House in London. He is also the Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser Visiting Professor of Australian Studies at Harvard University, a chair he'll take up uh, at, at the end of 2007 into 2000, and, sorry, 2017 into 2018. He has expertise in public international law, especially terrorism, human rights, armed conflict, the use of force, international crimes, this sounds like the whole of international law, development, the UN, Antarctica, and the Asia Pacific, <laughs> and refugees. <laughs> He's published widely in these areas and has been awarded numerous research grants, including a prestigious Australian Research Council Future Fellowship. So welcome to all the panellists. Uh, thank you. <laughs> And I'm, I'm now channeling Tony Jones. Okay. Without the politicians. Shakufa, we'll begin with you. Your father came to Australia by boat in 1999 in search of protection, whereas you and the rest of your family were later resettled here in 2006. I wondered if you could talk about the different experiences that you had, particularly when it came to your ability to settle into the Australian community. I'm not sure if this mic is still okay. on, but no, maybe I'll just bring it. Right. Okay. 
Um, well, in terms of different experiences, I guess uh, my father's experience and my experience have been quite paradoxical. Um, no wonder why. Uh, my father came here on a boat, uh, which reduced him to an illegal person. Um, you know, they have come to our country to exploit uh, the uh, sort of prosperity of Australia back in the early 2000s or 1999. And I came here invited by the Australian government through the special humanitarian program as a refugee back in 2006. And so you can imagine the differing and contrasting treatments that my father and I received as a result of that invited and invited status. Um, and I guess I was a beneficiary of a welcome that was dignified, that was respected, and really realized my humanity, whereas my father was reduced to an illegal instead of being welcomed. He and you know, the cohort uh, of asylum seekers that were arriving then and now uh, were treated with alienation. They were treated with contempt instead of being welcomed. Um, you know, th there were people who had uh, escaped very traumatic events, but were instead, you know, made even more frustrated, even uh, the, their, their trauma was, you know, emphasized on and reiterated on by laws and policies that they were being imposed on. And I suppose back then, yes, the temporary protection visas were there uh, like it is now. And so my father was the recipient of a temporary protection visa then. And so in terms of when it comes to integration, it's clear that no integration happens when a country does not welcome you. Know, a country, you know, actively um, dissuades you from belonging to that country. And unless one one is able to find a place, one is able to find time, one is able to find that sense of belonging that they have lost, um, they are not able to belong and integrate into the country. And that was the case of my father. That was the case of the people um, that came along with him. And in my case, yes, I was welcomed. And so there was that sense that I want to belong to this country. There was that excitement that I will belong to this country. And so it was different in my case. And I suppose I'm thankful for that, but I guess it is a sad state of affair when we think that, you know, out of refugees, we actively create two cohorts of people, two classes of refugee, bad refugee and good refugee. You know, despite fleeing the same violence, my father and I, we fled the same exact same violence, but I guess the rhetoric is there. The rhetoric is what makes the difference, what makes the very, um, I guess, uh, contrasting treatments when it comes to refugees and asylum seekers. And uh, more tragic is the fact that 10 and to 15 years on, we still have that kind of debate. Sarah, you've been the lawyer for a large number of unaccompanied minors, which is the term that really just describes children and, and young people who've arrived here without family members. Um, Many of them are now moving into early adulthood. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about their experiences coming to Australia. Thank you, Jane. For the purposes of panels like this, I like to refer to the unaccompanied children that I work with as my boys. Um, we do that so that they remain unidentified um, and also because I presently work with over 150 young boys that arrived here in Australia by boat. That's not to say that there aren't girls that arrived, and I do now have um, the pleasure of knowing some of the girls that did arrive as unaccompanied children, but my focus of work has been on the boys because they were the ones that were detained for a significant period. As we've heard from Shakufa, there's a real contrast in the way that we treat asylum seekers in Australia. And my experience is that even when it comes to young boys that arrive without a parent, that arrive without a guardian, they also have this contrast of experience. Very basically, I work with three very distinct group of boys. The first group of boys being those that arrived between the date of 13 August 2012 and those that arrived before 19 July 2013. 13 August 2012, we saw the implementation of the no advantage policy. And what meant for these boys was they arrived by boat, they were in detention for approximately three to four months. They were quickly transferred to a detention centre in Tasmania, which ironically they now all speak very fondly about because they had a great time just playing soccer and hanging out with all these other boys that were the same age as they were. 
but they've been left to wait for three years in order to apply for any kind of protection here in Australia. We then have the second group of boys that I like to call my Bravo boys, and they were arrived between 19 July and 2013. And thankfully, this group of Bravo boys, uh, I can't believe I'm saying thankfully, uh, were detained on Christmas Island for 18 months. Now, in those 18 months, we worked to prevent their transfer to Nauru. Thankfully, they are now in the community and they are in the process of having their visa applications looked at by the Department of Immigration. We then have the third group of boys that I work with and the group that are arguably the most vulnerable and the most forgotten, which are the unaccompanied children or boys on Nauru. They were the boys that were transferred, that arrived on the same boats as my Bravo boys, that arrived from the same countries as the Bravo boys, that arrived at the same age as the Bravo boys. But they were selected in order to present to Australia and present to the world that under no circumstances are we going to let asylum seekers who arrive by boat settle in this country. And they are now in Nauru. Most of them have been assessed as refugees and are now living in the Nauru community wondering what's going to happen to them. At RACS, we have groups of children that have arrived without their parents. We've got brothers that have arrived on different boats. We have bigger families that have come across three different policies, pre-13 August 2012, post-13 August 2012, post-19 July 2013. And despite the fact they are all children, despite the fact they all arrive without their parents, and despite the fact the government know that their siblings are here in the Australian community, we have enforced this policy of deterrence upon them. And my job has been to support them throughout that legal process and to now help them seek protection that they're in the community. Ben, almost 20 years ago, you spent some time in the Bhutanese refugee camps in Nepal, where people had been displaced for decades. I wondered if you could speak a little bit now about how protracted displacement impacts upon people's ability to move on with their lives. Thanks, Jane, and good afternoon, everybody. And uh, I should disclose up front that uh, I'm actually Jane's partner. Uh, and just as Donald Trump has been appointing his family members to all kinds of things, uh, I've wound up on this panel, but I'll... I'll uh, that's why I had to mention it did have refugee experience. I'll do my best, uh, do my best to demonstrate some merit, uh, I hope. Um, Never been likened to Trump before. <laughs> Thanks. So uh, visiting the, the Bhutanese refugee camps in Nepal over 20 years ago was my first encounter with refugees, really. And people have this kind of perception of Bhutan as this Shangri-La. It's got a, a national policy of gross national happiness. Uh, it's this uh, beautiful destination for trekking and uh, Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and so on. But of course, it's got a, a dark side of the kingdom as well, which is in uh, around 1990, 1991, uh, over 100,000 uh, of its residents, uh, primarily ethnic uh, Nepali people who were Hindu by religion, uh, were violently expelled by the monarchy, uh, which was a, you know, a closed shop descended from Tibetan Buddhists. So 100,000 people cross into India. The Indians kicked them on into Nepal. They wind up in UNHCR camps uh, and then were stuck there for over two decades. And some of them are still there today. Um, uh, Jane asked what I, um, what, what was the, my, my impression of uh, people's experience there. I was there in 1999, so that was about 10 years after they were, were first expelled. And I think what was interesting about that, and this is typical of a lot of refugee situations, is that uh, when people are first expelled, there's a kind of emergency phase where people are busy trying to survive and uh, everything's chaotic and people are getting organised. But once all that settles down and you move into what UNHCR uh, has called a, a care and maintenance phase, that's when the boredom sets in and you realise that you've got no work rights, you've got no... Uh, rights to further education, you can't own property, you can't start businesses, you can't travel, uh, you realise very quickly that your life opportunities are, are hugely limited. Uh, nobody else wants to take you, you can't integrate uh, locally, uh, and you can't go home. So your life is uh, stuck uh, in, in limbo and, and really suspended. 
Uh, and uh, I, I wanted to emphasize this as uh, for, for two policy reasons, really. One is that the Bhutanese experience is uh, utterly typical of the lives of most refugees worldwide. So in 2015, UNHCR tells us that, the, uh, that most refugees are stuck in protracted refugee situations, that means five years or more, uh, and of those, the majority uh, are stuck in a protracted situation uh, on average for 26 years. So if you think about that, you're a refugee at the age of 20, that's half a lifetime before you get what we call a durable solution when you're 46 or, or, or something like that. Or if you're 40, you know, you're retired by the time you get a solution. That's, that's literally half your, your life uh, wasted. Uh, but this is typical of the experience of, of most refugees. Uh, second uh, policy point I, I just make is that, you know, we, of course, uh, regard queue jumpers as morally suspect. But, of course, uh, you know, I wouldn't wait in a camp for 26 years. Most of you wouldn't. Uh, Minister Dutton wouldn't. Uh, Prime Minister Turnbull wouldn't. Uh, you know, anybody who cares about their own future, their family's futures, uh, of course would get on a boat or pay a people smuggler or transit in secondary movement through some other country until they found uh, a solution. So what I would say about this is uh, things are looking a bit better in Bhutan. There has been a, a new constitution and a political uh, transition. Um, Michael Kirby uh, took me to Bhutan to train the uh, Bhutanese judiciary uh, a few years ago, and we were forced to dance a Tibetan dance in front of 300 judges. Um, let's just say we weren't uh, invited back after that. Um, but I did want to acknowledge the presence of my friend Om Dungal here, uh, sitting down the front here, because Om was actually the very first refugee family resettled uh, who, who ended up in Australia many, many years ago. And I'm really pleased to say that Australia in recent years has settled many thousands of refugees, including some of the people I worked with uh, over uh, 20 years ago. Thank you. And I was really pleased to hear that all of Om's family are now here in Australia, which is a wonderful outcome. I just, just wanted to ask you one further question, Ben, which is that um, I, I remember you mentioning that, that men in particular found their life in the refugee camps really tough. Why was that? Why men in particular? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting thing about, about uh, refugee displacement, that it can have quite interesting effects on uh, culture and, and society. And uh, in a very traditional society back in Bhutan, uh, the men were the breadwinners, the, the farmers and, and so on. Uh, suddenly in a refugee camp, they find themselves utterly emasculated from those traditional roles. They've got nothing to do. They can't do business. They can't work. Uh, they're sitting around all day. Uh, it, it results in, uh, in many cases, all kinds of social problems. People turn to gambling and cards. They become uh, alcoholic, domestic violence spikes. Uh, on the other hand, you get uh, women who are suddenly being empowered through NGOs and UN activities uh, like income-generating uh, uh, businesses. So the um, UNHCR would get women to start weaving and selling their weaving for, for a bit of money on the side. They'd be involved in camp administration uh, of uh, you know, medical and, and food relief and, and so on. Uh, so you got quite a gender transformation. And incidentally, this is one of the reasons why the Bhutanese were then reluctant to uh, uh, ever take back uh, these refugees because gender roles had been so fundamentally uh, transformed. So for women, it was quite empowering for, for some of them. Um, but for, for men, it was uh, often a, 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 a negative experience in that particular way. Thanks. And I think, I mean, of course, we need to recognise that for some women, the experience is absolutely dreadful. You referred to domestic violence, and um, there's a huge amount of evidence about that. And we have Eileen Pitaway with us, of course, who's an expert on, um, on that issue. Um, I, I mean, I think what you've talked about there resonates a lot with some of the uh, comments that I've heard you uh, speak of, Shakufa. I mean, you've talked about the fact that in Australia, prolonged uncertainty means that adults can't make decisions about their lives and, and that in turn can have impacts on, on the family too. Um, absolutely. Um, I'd have to actually follow what Ben has said. Um, this man, well, majority of the asylum seekers tend to be men who risk their lives and jump on a boat. Um, these are men that have been really central to their families, to their communities, 
in their countries, they have been people and personalities of their own, and they have had a lot of autonomy in their lives and the decisions that they would make in their lives. And I guess, you know, deciding to leave your family, deciding to flee a very precarious situation demands a high, self of, a high sense of self-agency. And even more so, when you jump on a boat, you're literally jumping into the mouth of a shark. What kind of agency, what kind of self-autonomy does that require? I would say a very high degree. And when the same men actually seek safety and make it to Australian shores, they are completely stripped away of that self-agency. And their self-agency is now completely shifted to the mercy of the government, to the mercy of the laws and policies that they're being imposed with. And so that frustrates them for these kind of independent men, independent human who just want to seek safety, who are now not able to make the simplest life decisions. Not, they're not able to make investment, future investments. They're not able to make long-term or short-term decisions. They're not able to make the decision to see their families being on temporary protection visas or bridging visas it's degrading to them. It regresses their sense of self. And, and it's there that, you know, they get deluded. They don't make sense of their, the life, the time, and the space. And I'd have to say that's when hopelessness sets in and um, the sort of mental uh, regression, mental anguish sets in for them. Sarah, does that resonate with the experiences of your boys? Yeah, absolutely. The most common question that I get at RACS is when? When am I getting out? When can I apply for a visa? When is my interview? When will I get an answer? When are you going to call me? When are we having an appointment? When can I come and see you? Now I have clients that have visas. I'm getting the question of, Miss Sarah, when are you getting married? <laughs> and we laugh about that now. But the thing is that these boys that are in my office are coming in with photos of their family and I have one boy who has three sisters and he's missed each of their weddings and he at the moment has no opportunity of seeing them. He has no opportunity of going to visit them because they've remained in the home country so he can never go back to where they are and so the sad thing is that at the moment the closest thing he has to family is his lawyer. And it's devastating to think that these young, beautiful boys, the only hope they currently have in life is when does my lawyer get married? And these are brilliantly gifted, intelligent boys that were able to go to high school here in Sydney for most of them, Sydney or Melbourne. And the minute they turn 18 and they're on their own, despite how brilliantly intelligent that they are, they can't cope because they're cut off of all their support services and they have to negotiate with the local schools to allow them to continue attending those schools because the federal government will no longer fund their education. Now, we're lucky to have schools such as Holroyd High School and Bankstown Senior College, which are incredible and have never said no to me, so I'm very grateful um, that they will constantly take in the boys that I work with. But more than that, even though we now have work rights for those in the community, asylum seekers on bridging visas. They're still crippled by, what if I get a job? When do I have to move? If I have a job, will they let me keep my job if my bridging visa expires? When does my bridging visa expire? When do I get a new one? What can I do? Do I need to go to a regional area now? When can I go? Can I wait? So there's constant questions in their life. They have absolutely zero stability, even when we afford them protection. Shukufa, I've heard you also speak about, um, and I alluded to this in the last mm. question, but I'd, I'd welcome further comments if you have them. You've talked about the breakdown of refugees' family units once they are in Australia, um, and you've linked that back to policies of the government, including, you know, bars on family reunion, very lengthy uh, separation, delays in processing and so on. Um, and I think there's also something that perhaps we often don't think about here, which is how the 
the concept of family mm. is understood in different cultures. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe talk about some of those aspects? Sure. Um, I guess uh, across all cultures, family is a central aspect of your life, and the same is true with asylum seekers and refugees who seek um, Australia's, um, Australia's protection. And with asylum seekers that are currently um, in Australia, they have no prospect of reuniting with their families. They are losing it, really. Their family units are breaking down. Um, and oftentimes we forget that these people have relationships either in their capacity as a father or as a, you know, as a husband or as a partner. These are people that actually have relationships also to deal with. They have families to sustain. They have families to emotionally sustain because um, it's, it's, it's not, it's not only the safety that matters, it really is the concept of family that has to be maintained. For them not to be able to reunite with their families, that prospect of sustaining the family diminishes drastically. And I think that that's when this kind of mistrust sets in. And we have to remember that this majority of the men who make decisions to jump on a boat are doing it for the sake of their families. It is out of commitment, it is out of devotion that they're doing it. And you know, years pass and they're still stuck in the process of limbo in a state, uh, in a state of uncertainty in, in relation to their status or their prospect of reuniting with them. Um, that kind of commitment, that kind of devotion melts away and families break down. And so they lose it. And I think that in, in times of uncertainty, their families are the only thing that they have at stake. That's the only thing that really matters to them, for them not to be able to hold on to their families. Um, it's, it's quite tragic and very much unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of, um, of asylum seekers who are here at, mm. at the moment and, um, you know, the husband might be here, the wife's back at home and thinks that he must be having an affair because right. he won't bring her over here, whereas the policy just doesn't mm. allow it. I mean, Sarah, have, yeah. have you seen that with your... It happens all the time, especially for the men in detention and the young people in detention where their families just cannot comprehend um, Australia. Australia is this wonderful country of kangaroos and bushland and everyone is free and look at Bindi Irwin, she's having a great time and there's no way that Australia would lock someone up for three and a half years. There's no way Australia would do that. Australia is a compassionate country, Australia has human rights. It seems incomprehensible to people outside that Australia could and would treat people in this way. Yeah, one other thing I have to say is that, um, I guess whether we, we like it or not, um, a lot of these men think that they are the central figure in their families. They ultimately are in a context of, of forced migration where their protection of the family depends on the men and the men's shoulder. Um, it, it is when they are stripped to of that autonomy, sense of autonomy, that they lose a lot of hope. Um, we consult communities or asylum seekers um, at the grassroots level, and I hear constantly uh, the fact that my children are, you know, withdrawing from me. They're growing detached every day. Um, the fact that we have communication, we have new technology, we can contact uh, our children every day, that does not, that is not adequate for us to sustain them. That doesn't, uh, that is not enough for us to keep that, um, you know, child and father or partner to partner relationship because um, ultimately they need to be reunited and uh, to be able to sustain those, uh, those kind of um, relationships. And when you're not there when they're sick, you're not there when they're well, you're not there when they're, they fall really vulnerable um, given their given that they're living in war-torn countries, um, it is unimaginable how units of family break down. So, Ben, how is it then that Australia, you know, the human rights, uh, democracy, as Sarah was saying, people perceive Australia as, how is it that Australia can impose policies like this? Aren't they contrary to international law? Absolutely. I mean, it's a, a no-brainer. Uh, I mean, under human rights law, the, the family is described as the fundamental unit of society. And if you go back to look at the drafting of the main human rights treaties many dec decades ago, um, these provisions on family rights, including family reunion, uh, were some of the provisions with the highest level of agreement of the most governments. In other words, conservative governments, progressives, alike agreed that the family is the bedrock of society and that allowing people to live with their families is a minimum condition of a dignified life. 
so for that reason, I think um, Australia's policies in this area have been uh, particularly atrocious and illegal because not only do we prevent family reunion, uh, we know from the, the Human Rights Commission and numerous other uh, reports that we've allowed families to disintegrate through detention, uh, through institutionalised child abuse of refugee children in detention centres, uh, but also through really perverse legal arguments. And one of the worst I came across in some of the cases I've taken to the UN uh, was Australia saying, well, um, uh, we want to keep families together, we want to maintain family uh, unity, so we'll detain the whole family together uh, instead of releasing the parents to be with the child in the community when we know that it's in the best interest of children to live in the community and to not be uh, detained. So they're flipping some of these uh, arguments on their, on their head. Uh, and I think this is really, I mean, politically, um, I'll stray outside my expertise here, uh, ironic, particularly for conservative governments which bleat about the importance of family values at every opportunity uh, and yet do their utmost to destroy the sanctity of families. Shakufa, recently you, were, um, you asked a question on Q&A and you said, and I, I quote, that you felt that detention, temporary protection visas, a lack of family reunion opportunities citizenship delays, lack of certainty, prolonged delays in processing, were driving people to self-harm and suicide. In the Hazara community alone in the past 12 months, there have been six cases of suicide and self-harm. Can you tell us a bit more? Sure. Um, I guess the concept of suicide and self-harm is quite unheard um, in Afghanistan, given that it is uh, pretty much a war zone um, and people can get killed every minute but they don't take their lives. Uh, what is it that compels people to take their own life when they come here, the land of the free? Um, you know, Jim Mullen really did dismiss the fact that there is a connection between uh, the law and policy and mental deteriorating mental health of people and asylum seekers in Australia. He said that you know, Hazaras being persecuted in Afghanistan, how can you claim that they come here and our laws and policies, you know, uh, mentally harm them? Um, I guess, firstly, we, we did hear in the morning that we, we did hear an academic finding um, that one in three refugees suffers post-traumatic disorder. They, they're really susceptible to mental, mental, uh, issue, mental health issues. Um, it only exacerbates that kind of trauma is not even in the equation at times when it comes to asylum seekers. Um, they are languished, they're you know, subjected to further trauma the, by way of laws and policies uh, without even consideration of uh, treating the pre-existing trauma that they come with you know, to Australia. Um, I think that it, it makes for a stronger case the fact that they have suffered persecution and when they come here they need to be welcomed with a little bit of compassion for that trauma to sort of diminish instead of being subjected to more trauma. And in, case of, in the case of Hazara community, yes, that is true. It is a, a tragic state of affair where young men um, men who have families back home are taking their own lives because the policy, law and policies have constrained them so. They have lost complete sanity. And um, in the words of, in their own words, they tell me that we have completely gone mad when I consult with them. And as a group, they laugh about it because they, they're saying we're, we're all going mad. So it's a common thing between us. It's, it's, I think that is very tragic that they are subjected to um, such laws and policies that deliberately brings about further mental health uh, problems in them. Sarah, can you tell us um, a little about the impact that temporary protection visas have on your clients? And I guess particularly things like people's ability to access education, tertiary education in particular, um, work, all those sure. kinds of things. So, um, for those in the audience, a very quick Immigration 101 that I'm sure you've all been aware of, but temporary protection visas afford people protection for three years. And then at the end of three years, they go through this process again. And at the end of three years, they go through this process again. And at the end of three years, again. And at the end of three years, again. And again. And again. Indefinitely for the rest of their lives. And one of the things that my clients 
cannot comprehend is what do you mean I have to do this again? I have to relive the trauma, my experience, what happened to me every three years. Whilst you're on a temporary protection visa, you have no right to sponsor your family. You can't bring your family here. Your only alternative then is a CHEV, a safe haven enterprise visa, which is protection afforded to you for five years. And on that condition that you go and work or study in regional Australia for three and a half years, and then we will give you the opportunity to apply for some other visas in Australia, which are incredibly onerous. We had US students who came out here for internships at RACS that sat the IELTS exam, and they didn't pass. How are we going to have people that have sought protection here in Australia pass these onerous tests in order to get these other visas? I was crunching the numbers before I came down here and I was looking at the best case scenario for one of my clients that let's say arrived in Australia in August 2012 is that in 2028, when he's 31, he might see his family in Australia. And by that stage, he'll be 31 and he won't be afforded most of the family reunion options. So I see and I explain that they'll be stuck in this refugee cycle of constantly having to prove themselves and constantly having to document the harm that they've experienced and their fears. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that reliving the trauma that you have experienced in your life over and over and over again, proving yourself to department officers saying, you must believe me, this is going to happen, has got to be traumatising. And on top of that, while you're on a TPV or whilst you're on a CHEV, Australian immigration says, sure, we give you permission to study. We're not getting in your way. But you go to your local TAFE, you go to your university, you go to any education provider, and you are classified as an international student, which means that you're not provided any of the fee help that might be available to you. Now, I appreciate that we're at UNSW, and so I am going to plug the fact that they have supported many refugees to come to their university. But these are one-off exceptions. This is not attending to the educational needs of a whole group of people. Now, immigration says to us, well, that's not our fault. We give people permission to study. And my response to that is, well, it is your fault. Because if you gave them a permanent protection visa, if you gave them an 866, then they would be afforded all of the rights of a permanent resident and all these issues, or many of these issues, will go away. Ben, you alluded before to some cases that you've taken to the UN Human Rights Committee. You've acted on behalf of over 50 people, 50 refugees, who were being held in indefinite detention because they'd received adverse security clearances. Can you tell us a bit about those cases, the impact on the clients, and what the committee's findings were? Sure. Uh, look, these were cases which uh, in some ways are some of the most difficult in our system because they are where security concerns and concerns about both people coincide. So super sensitive uh, issues for governments and for sovereignty, uh, according to the government's view of it. Uh, essentially, if you come to Australia and you want to be um, exception into the community, ASIO does a, a security assessment, assessment on you. Uh, about 54, 55 people uh, after, who arrived by boat after 2009 were assessed uh, with an adverse security assessment by ASIO. Uh, but the thing about security assessments is you don't get to see the evidence or allegations against you. So you might get a very broad brush allegation, but you don't get to see the essence of the case against you. And so from a due process standpoint, uh, you're unable to effectively contest those allegations uh, to demonstrate why the case against you is wrong or unreliable and, and so on. Uh, and so you effectively fall into this legal black hole. Um, uh, it's almost impossible to challenge, challenge it uh, in, the, in the courts. And the consequence of an assessment is that uh, you can't be uh, admitted into the community on a visa. Uh, no other country will take you because Australia accepts these people are refugees. Mostly they were Tamils from Sri Lanka. 
um, so they can't be sent back there. Uh, and in some cases, Australia has shopped these guys around to 12 or 13 other countries, all of whom have said, you say they're terrorists, why the hell would we take them? Uh, so the consequence, of course, is they get stuck. And so since 2009, um, most of these people were uh, detained on an indefinite basis for at least five years until there was a, a, a turning point I'll, I'll describe in a, in a moment. But the guts of this was um, we went to the UN, we said uh, this violates Australia's human rights obligations. The UN agreed. They said it's illegal detention because there's... No, no due process, there's no substantiation of the allegations against these people, uh, there's no effective judicial protection because the Australian government had said, oh, you can always go to the High Court under the Constitution. We'd said, yeah, but the High Court in Al-Khateb said uh, indefinite detention is fine. The government came back and said to the UN, well, you can ask the High Court to overturn itself, you know, and re-argue Al-Khateb uh, like that's going to work. Um, uh, and then the other part of the case was the, the UN accepted that the uh, impacts uh, of uh, this acute stress brought on by six years of uh, indefinite detention uh, in pretty terrible conditions in some cases uh, amounted not to torture but the next worst thing, uh, which is cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. What was our evidence of that? Uh, well, some of our guys, there's a young Tamil man, um, one guy had uh, drunk bleach, trying to kill himself, another uh, took the, the front off a PowerPoint and stuck his finger in, uh, another one cut himself, another one tried to hang himself. So numerous cases of uh, attempted suicide because of this incredible stress that these guys were, were under. The government, of course, comes back and says, oh, well, that's just attention-seeking. So... Ben, how long, just briefly, how long do those kinds of processes take? And, and at the end of the day, what's the impact of a finding from the UN Human Rights Committee that says, yes, Australia, you have violated your international obligations? So at the moment, unfortunately, because the UN system is so under-resourced, uh, complaints can take up to five years to resolve, uh, which is not as bad as the Indian courts, but uh, not as good mm. as the uh, Australian courts. Um, uh, in this case, because there, this was a systemic problem, there were 50, uh, 51 of them in our cases, um, the UN committee agreed to expedite it. So we got a decision in under three years, which was uh, pretty remarkable in some ways, indicating just how seriously the, the UN took these cases. Um, obviously, the UN uh, committee decisions are not binding legal decisions, like of a court, uh, but they are the most authoritative interpretations of binding human rights treaty obligations uh, by an expert, non-partisan, non-political committee uh, of uh, international lawyers and, and human rights people. The problem is, of course, Australia routinely rejects the findings of expert UN bodies. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, John McEnroe spitting the dummy at the referee uh, every time, you know, saying, you're wrong. Um, and so, of course, what this means is that um, Australia is, is really saying international law is whatever Australia says it is. Uh, I mean, it's, which is not law at all. Uh, it's contemptuous, it's, uh, and it's hypocritical. I mean, we lecture China uh, every week and, and Russia about the need to respect a rules-based international order. Uh, and in this area, we're doing everything we can to destroy the rules. So moving from UN processes back to Australia, Sarah, can you tell us a bit about the human impact of legal processes here, like fast-tracking? We had a presentation on that mm. this morning. Um, you know, how do people cope with this toing and froing from nothing at all, being in limbo, and then these urgent deadlines, mm. and then maybe nothing again for a while? Bottom line is they don't. Um, they've been waiting for three years, and then they get a letter saying, you must act now. Uh, and we're not going to get a lawyer to help you. We're not going to fund legal assistance to assist you, and you're on your own. Uh, you know, we have a clinic at RACS, and there are hundreds if not close to thousands of people waiting for our service to assist them fill in a form and document their story. Something, a constant issue that I have with my clients is we now have this law which applies retrospectively that says you must supply all identity documents from your home country. And I'm saying to them, you have an interview in three weeks and you need to get that passport sent here, you need to get that driver's licence here, you need to get your father's birth certificate to Australia now, and they look at me like, well, why didn't you ask me for this three years ago? 
And it's like, well, unfortunately, the law wasn't that three years ago, and now you're in this process, and we don't know when you're going to get called up, and now you're getting called up, and everything has to happen now. Now, the clients themselves are saying, well, this seems insane that I've just been wandering around, nobody's cared what I've been doing or where I am, and now suddenly you want me to document my whole life without anyone to help me. And you expect me to provide all these unrealistic things such as passports, which I had to pay in exchange to come to Australia. As the lawyer, it's frustrating because now all the onus is on us. We're the ones that immigration are calling saying, where's that birth certificate? We're the ones that are now responsible for getting our clients over the line. And we're the ones that are responsible for telling the people that we serve that if you don't do this, you will go home. And you will go home soon if you don't comply with these timelines and if you don't meet what they are requesting that you provide. And for people that have been living in the Australian community, they're like, what? Uh, my kid has their disco on Friday night. They're part of the Australian community. They're part of the fabric of Australia. And now we're expecting them to act quickly without any assistance. It, it seems extraordinarily hard and something that they cannot do on their own. Shakufa, I want to ask you something that's quite a personal question, but you did say that you'd be prepared to answer it. And, and that is, can you tell us what is it like to be waiting for resettlement? I mean, the uncertainty of that, did you feel at a loss as to whether you would ever be reunited with your father? What, um, what was it like? Yeah, uh, it's, it's very uncertain. Oh. And I sympathise with the 30,000 people, well, mostly uh, men, the breadwinners who've come here to, you know, in hopes of reuniting with their families in a safe environment. And that's the important thing. And I guess... Um, being younger and um, uh, at that time, I could fully comprehend the consequences and the, um, you know, bad consequences that if, if we were to go back to Afghanistan, um, my father was in temporary protection visa and there was a great likelihood that he would be returned uh, to Afghanistan while we were in Quetta, Pakistan. Quetta, Pakistan was a temporary refuge. So if we had to return, we, ha we would go to Afghanistan. And um, I had all the images, I had all the memories really afresh in my mind. And there was no likelihood that we would actually be able to go back to Afghanistan. The political environment, the instability, the conflict had not changed and still hasn't changed to this day. Um, I, who has departed from Afghanistan seven, about 17 years ago in 1999, um, I'm still not able to go back to Afghanistan. And to say that um, the you know, political affairs, political instability, war, and everything will, will change in a matter of three years, it's, it's very, very simplified and it's very uh, unrealistic. And at that time, I did feel, um, and the rest of my family, we did feel uncertain um, about the prospects, about the future. And there was a lot of worry that we would be going to Afghanistan. We would not even imagine it. And, uh, but we didn't, fortunately, we didn't. Um, we reunited with my father in 2006. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Ben, I'll, I'll turn back to you. Um, on Sunday, of course, we had the government's announcement that refugees would be resettled from Nauru and Papua New Guinea to the United States. Do you think that that means that Australia has moved from granting permanent protection to people in need to imposing permanent prohibitions? Well, this proposed bill to ban refugees ever coming back to Australia is, uh, is pretty extraordinary. Uh, Donald Trump only wants to ban Muslims and Mexicans. We want to ban people of every race and, uh, and religion if they're refugees. Uh, certainly that bill, I think, and, and uh, Jane and I had a piece in the Herald last week uh, arguing it would be illegal. It's imposing a penalty contrary to the Refugee Convention, a penalty on the basis of the way people came to Australia, which is not permitted for the reason I, I mentioned earlier, uh, which is... Uh, refugees have a right to seek protection. And if they need to transit through places which don't offer them protection and which aren't safe in order to reach some other safe place, then that's their right. And they don't uh, have to wait in camps for, on average, 26 years. It's also excessive, as we know. Uh, I mean, banning people in 20 years' time coming to you know, visit the Great Barrier Reef or on business and so on when they have US citizenship is obviously absurd. 
uh, but also on its own logic, I don't think it's a deterrent uh, because, I mean, I've been trying to understand this. I mean, uh, if you were a, a, a refugee contemplating coming to Australia, would you seriously think, I'm not going to get on a boat now because if I do and I manage to, you know, breach the sea wall of naval vessels uh, and I then get sent to Nauru or Papua New Guinea where I might stay for three, four, five, six years... Uh, and then if some other country decides to resettle me, and it's probably not going to be the US because Donald Trump is now president and will stop that and nobody else has uh, stumped up resettlement places. Uh, and then I get citizenship of that uh, resettlement country down the track. And then I want to come to the Barrier Reef uh, on tourism <laughs> in 20 years' time. Uh, and I'm not allowed to. Oh, I won't get on a boat today. Uh, I, mean, I don't know what planet these politicians live on and it's it's certainly not the real world well thank you for your views <laughs> sarah do you have any input yeah. that you'd like to add on this i'm i'm glad that ben has opened so personally i feel more comfortable in my position now um which is that absolutely the lifetime ban is unnecessarily punitive there is no justifiable reason for this ban and we all remain strongly opposed to it and I echo everything that Ben has stated. I guess I have three reactions to the announcement on Sunday, and that is that I'm petrified, I am confused, and I'm deeply concerned. I am petrified for the people on Nauru and Manus Island that this deal will fall over. I am petrified that we have provided them with a level of hope that I have not experienced in my time working with these boys that we are going to strip away that hope yet again and we're going to leave people behind. I am confused because it seems to me that resettlement in the US goes against everything that we've heard about deterrence. I am confused that it's okay to resettle in the US, but it's not okay to resettle in Australia where you've lived for the past three years. And finally, I'm deeply concerned that again we are separating families. I would be surprised that if anyone in this room have not, has not seen or heard the story of Nasa. Now, Nasa is on Manus Island while his wife and children are living here in the Sydney community. Why do we need to send him to the US? Why do we need to ban him from ever coming to Australia ever again? His family are stateless. How are they ever going to reunite with their father ever again? It is just, it gets more and more ludicrous. And I keep saying, my colleagues in the audience today, I feel like for the past three years I have kept saying, I can't believe I'm still shocked. And yet on Sunday, I was still shocked. And I just very in my heart of hearts that I'm just petrified that we're going to be left in January looking, going, well, what now? And we're going to have people even more devastated and even more broken than they were a month ago. And Shakufa, over to you, final word on this. I suppose I'd have to reiterate Ben's words, um, is the fact that we're building walls um, you know, around Australia for people not to ever come to Australia. I think that we're going a further step in disengaging um, into, in, in the global affairs, the fact that there are 65 million people who are displaced, 21. 21.1 to be exact um, uh, million refugees and the fact that we are able to take unilateral actions in order to you know um, sort of justify our actions it's it's unbelievable I think we have gone um, a new height in terms of our deterrent um, policies well, I'm going to have to draw the panel to a close uh, because our closing keynote speaker has arrived and we, we certainly wish to hear from him. But I'd invite you to join with me and thank our three panellists for their wonderful insights.